So hey, um, <clears throat> we're going to be in the book of uh, Habakkuk this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Habakkuk, if you go to your Bible and uh, kind of go near the end of the Old Testament, it's crammed, you get Micah, Nahum, then Habakkuk, then Zephaniah and Haggai. So if any of those ones, you're, you're close, and you come to Habakkuk, I don't, I don't have your page number, I don't know. There you go, 667, page 667 in your church Bibles. So uh, last time I taught was at the end of August, and we looked at Habakkuk chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, uh, but being that it's been, I don't know, three, three and a bit months since, I thought that maybe we should kind of do a little survey of the whole book so we can get the whole context of what's going on in Habakkuk. So just diving in, starting at verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk saw a vision from the Lord, is what we're seeing. And he starts out in verse 2 and he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and how long will you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. You know, Habakkuk starts this out. This is a narrative, actually. You know, this is not just a straight-up prophecy. This is a narrative. We're watching what happens in Habakkuk and his in his conversation with God, and he says, God, I don't get it. How long are you waiting? It sounds like the psalmist uh, in Psalm 13 says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He's starting off very similar to that. How long, Lord? And then he comes in and he says, why, in verse three, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? We see that Habakkuk it likely was, was a Levite. He probably served in the temple and he was looking at the nation of Judah around him and he was looking at, at the spiritual state of the, of the nation. He was looking at the governance of the nation and he's saying, what is going on, God? I don't get it. Why? He lived in a time, you know, if you cruise through the Old Testament, you'll see this pattern in the kings of Israel and Judah. There'll be one good godly king and then there'll be two or three train wrecks and then there'll be one good godly king, and then there'll be a, a, train wrecks again. Because a continual pattern. It's very likely that Habakkuk lived under the godly king of Josiah. But that, that time has come and gone now, and he's probably, when he pens and records this prophecy for us, he's probably under the ungodly king of <coughs> Je, uh, Je, Jehoiakim. Sorry, I'm reading my words all weird. In a time where the, the moral compass of the nation, the, the, the righteousness has just gone off. There's no law. Look what he says. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Destruction. Violence, strife, contention, paralyzed law. You know, the NASB translates the word paralyzed as ignored. The leaders were ignoring God's law. They were ignoring the law. A paralyzed law, that sounds like we can, we can relate to that, can't we? We can look around in our world and we can see right being called wrong and wrong being called right. And, and a world that's flipped upside down and backwards and justice perverted. That's what Habakkuk was dealing with. And he says, God, why are you looking idly? Why aren't you doing something? How come I have to see these wrongs going on in the nation? I don't get it, he says. That's his first complaint he brings before God. 
You know, God's faithful. He answers. Starting in verse five of chapter one, God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. You know, God gives a clear response to Habakkuk. He says, I'm not idle. I am working. I am doing stuff. But you know what? I'm going to blow your mind. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Remind that Isaiah says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God always has something going on even when we don't perceive it with our eyes. And this is what the work was in Habakkuk's day starting in verse six. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Chaldeans is Babylon. He's using the desire of a conquering nation for his purposes. Who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. These are a fearful, conquering force the Lord is going to use, and they are going to clean house with Judah, is what the Lord is saying. In fact, they, they have their own idea of what righteousness is. They have their own idea of what dignity is. Their justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. They have made themselves the authority. They do whatever they want. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. The Lord describes the military might of Babylon. Something scary. Have you guys ever considered what a pack of wolves is like? I haven't experienced it firsthand, but I used to work at this little resort out by Kamloops, and we did trail rides. And the boss's daughter did the trail rides, and she'd go out with six or eight or ten horses and customers, and they'd go, and they'd to the top of the mountains and look around and come back. One day while I was working there, she came back, freaked out of her mind. Turns out as they were crossing a clear cut, she had looked back and saw three or four wolves tailing them. Scary. Vicious. Efficient. Brutal. Verse 9, speaking of the Chaldeans, says they come, they all come for violence, their faces looking forward. They gather captives like the sand. They set their eyes on the, the town they're going to conquer, the nation, and they do it. They gather the captives up like sand, like grains of sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. You know, mankind, we've built lots of fortresses over the years, haven't we? Those of you guys who are going to Israel soon, you guys are going to go and visit Masada. And Masada is going to be, if you've ever seen it, there is an epic example of a siege ramp there. This was thought to be an impenetrable fortress. And it eventually was penetrated by a siege ramp. There's more to the story, but it was a huge siege ramp that thousands of years later is still there. Pile it up and take it over. They sweep up like the wind and they go on, guilty men whose own might is their own God. This military might, Babylon, has, has made themselves gods in their own minds. They've made themselves, as I said before, justice and dignity in their own minds. Here they've elevated, in their own minds, they've elevated themselves as gods. No wonder Habakkuk, a righteous prophet, is upset and he's not going to understand this. So Habakkuk's disappointed about the nation, the state of, of Judah. 
And God gives him this crazy answer that he wouldn't believe. We wouldn't believe if God said it to us probably either. It would be like, you know, sending North Korea to come and deal with the unrighteousness in Canada. We'd say, what? God, we don't get it. They're less righteous than us. This is exactly what Habakkuk says starting in verse 12. He starts and he states some things about God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He doesn't get it. But he does understand some very important facts about God, truths, deep truths. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? He declares his faith in God in the midst of his, mis- of his misunderstanding and his wondering. He understands the enduring nature of God. He declares his faith once again, my God, my Holy One. And he clings to the promise that God has given to his people that he will never leave them nor forsake them. He will never fully destroy them. And he keeps on asking this. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil. He's got good theology. He understands that God cannot have evil in his presence. And therefore he asks that question, why a nation more unrighteous than Judah? Why would a people or a person more unrighteous than you and I and our nation be used to judge us? Is that possible? He carries on and he describes some of the brutality and, and the, the, the nature of the Chaldeans. He says, God, you made the fish, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. He, this being Babylon, brings him up with a hook. Uses the analogy of a fisherman. Then he drags him out with his net. I get that. Catch your hook, get it in the net, pull it in the boat. Bonk it on the head, and pretty soon it's on the frying pan. But if that isn't good enough, he grabs a drag net, and he gets the whole school. They keep on going. It says he drags out with his net. He gathers them in his drag net, so he rejoices and therefore is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in, in luxury, for his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? Habakkuk says to God, when is this gonna end? How long, O Lord, are you gonna let these evil conquering nation succeed? And why? I don't get it. These guys, they worship their might of their hands. They worship their dragnets. In this case, probably their military might and conquering power. They worship it. Why, Lord? You know, Babylon, they, they, they fished to conquer men. They wanted to control, bring tyranny and death. They, they, they exercised idolatry towards themselves. They elevated the work of their hands. They destroyed They bring taxes and burden. What does Jesus do for us? He makes us fishers of men with good news so that they, us, we, those who we share the good news with may have freedom, walk in grace, have life. He's worthy of our worship. He teaches us that the work of our hands is the provisions he's given us. He is our creator. He lifts our burdens. 
Matthew, Jesus talks about his yoke being light and his burden being easy. What a difference. Habakkuk's confused when he hears this. He doesn't get it. But I like what Habakkuk does here. The next verse he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's latest, his, all his cards out before God. He's, he doesn't know what to do, but he does the right thing. He goes back to his station. He goes back to his place. It says to the tower. Maybe that's where the temple musicians were. Maybe that's his, where his vocation was. That's what he did. Maybe that's his prayer closet, the place where he goes and seeks the Lord. But he went back to the place and he waited upon the Lord to look and see what God was going to say to him. He expected the Lord to answer him. He came expectant. And he was meditating on what his answer would be for the Lord because he understood that there was going to be a response required or a response coming. You know, when I think about this, I, I wonder when I'm in trouble, when I don't understand, what's my first position? Do I go to the place of prayer? Do I go to the place with my Bible open and wait for the Lord? Or do I try and do things on my own? Habakkuk is a great example when we don't, can't wrap our heads around it. To wait on the Lord. We sang this morning. Uh, <clears throat> I know we sang it. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. As we wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise when we wait upon him in anticipation. I don't know about you guys, sometimes I can think that I'm waiting. You ever have it where you come to God's word and you're kind of tired and you grab your Bible and you sit in your easy chair and you kick the leg thing up and you, okay, I'm going to read. Lord, thank you for your word and I just fell asleep. Or you know what, I can tick off on my little ticky box in my reading plan. Yes, I read chapter 8 and 9 today. I have no idea what I read. You know, I, I was kind of challenged as I was reading one commentator in this, and he says, what is my attitude when I come to God's word? He said, do I come to God's word alert and attentive with a pen and paper ready to receive what the Lord has for me? It challenged me. You know what? When I sit at, uh, at, a, at the desk or the table with pen and paper ready and God's word open, I learn so much more from God's word when I come ready to wait and listen. The Lord does something in my heart when I come attentive. He softens my heart as I come to him with my full attention. And I need to, we need to also come there and look what, when he says to us, what we will answer regarding our concern, our complaint. The NASB translates that, how I may reply when reproved. Interesting. 
Sometimes we get kicked in the butt when we come to God's word, don't we? The Lord answered Habakkuk. He answered him very clearly. In fact, he says in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord is saying to Habakkuk, this is important. I want this recorded. I want it recorded on tablets. I don't want it on paper that when it gets wet becomes nothing. I want it tablets. I want it clear. And he says, it seems like a little weird line here. So he may run who reads it. And everyone seems to have a different take on it. But I believe it's the idea that it's clear enough that as you walk by you can read it. That it's clear enough that simpletons like myself and you guys that we can understand what the Lord is teaching us and run with it and apply it in our lives. Mark it on tablets, record it simply, record it clearly. The Lord promises his work is gonna come to fruition. For the vision still awaits its appointed time. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It's coming. It will not delay. Then the Lord says regarding the Chaldeans, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Think about it. It says, behold, think about it. Let's stew on it. His soul is puffed up. What does that mean? It's not upright within him. You know, Babylon thought they had arrived, right? They were conquering the world. They had wealth. They had power. They fulfilled themselves with every indulgence known to man, right? Anything they wanted, they could have in their day. But God tells Habakkuk that that the soul is puffed up. It's not upright. It's not level. It's not true. You know, a floor in a house is supposed to be flat, right? My house is old, I just put new cabinets in. They're on the floor here, and there's an inch of shim on that side to get them level-ish. So if I spill water on that floor, it kind of goes to the corner. We're just going to try to hide that. Now, this is almost embarrassing, but it was a great example for me this week. I'm a mechanic, right, by trade? And um, so I drive an old clunker. And... uh, you guys remember Tuesday morning? It was snowing like crazy, right? And uh, I leave for work around 7 o'clock, so it's pitch black. And um, I've known for a while my headlights haven't been adjusted very well, but I'm a mechanic. I don't have time to open the hood. So for the longest time, as I'm heading back and forth to work, it's a little bit, you know, follow the taillights in front of you and drive by Braille, right? Um, so I really learned on Tuesday morning that my headlights were actually, you know when you drive in the snow and your headlights are too high and all you see is snow? All I saw was snow and maybe where the deer might be on the side of the road, way over there. And seriously, all I could do was hope that I could see the taillights. When I couldn't see the taillights, I was kind of weaving and hoping someone was going to come the other way to light the road And it was scary. It was not correct, not on the level, not aligned properly, out of alignment, not where it ought to be, dangerous. I actually popped the hood and aligned them for the way home. (laughs) 
It's amazing how much better you can see when things are aligned properly. You know, we try many things as people, as mankind, to make ourselves feel like we're aligned properly, to feel like our stand is here holding things rather than being like this and things falling. Mankind, we try the pursuit of pleasure. We try the pursuit of wealth. We try the pursuit of religion. We try the pursuit of doing things, trying to gain favor. But it doesn't fulfill now, does it? Here we're reminded, I'm reminded that God doesn't require us to do, to do, to do, to do. He requires a soft, humble, hum, contrite heart before him, as the psalmist tells us. And here's the contrast, and such an important verse in our Bibles is the second half of verse four. It says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's that one is an assurance to Habakkuk. We look at the context of this, the puffed up soul is talking about Babylon. And it's like God's saying, Babylon is puffed up in his soul, he's not upright, but the righteous shall live by faith. We know it's impossible to please God without faith. It's easy, we can talk about this faith. What's faith? Faith is trusting. It's such an important doctrine that we're not saved by our doing, we're not saved by our religion, we're not saved by our pursuits of pleasure, but we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. It literally, in Hebrew, the translation is, the justified man by his faith will live. The Bible takes three books of the Bible to help explain this. If you go to the New Testament, it's quoted in Romans, where Romans talks about salvation and justification. What is it to be just? And in Galatians, it's quoted again, as Galatians helps us and teaches us how to live. And it's again quoted in Hebrews where we get, learn what faith is. You know, the, the, in the Jewish, the Jews in the Talmud had a saying that the whole law was given at Mount Sinai to Moses in 613 precepts. David in Psalm 15 brings him down to 11. Isaiah down to six, Micah to three, Isaiah da- again down to two, and Habakkuk to this one. The just shall live by faith. What does it mean to be just? Just is like more than being forgiven. Just is, is if it's in a court of law, you are declared, you are declared innocent because it didn't happen. You are made just. Except in our case, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he's washed the slate clean. So when God looks at us, he sees as if it never happened. Justified by our faith alone, not by our doing. The Lord's gonna keep on talking to Habakkuk about Babylon. Starting in verse five, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. It says, Moreover, wine, you might notice there's a little footnote in your Bible, it says, Also, wealth. Isn't that interesting? Is a traitor, an arrogant man. 
as I thought about it, you know, really it's more so than just the wine, just the wealth, the idea of the intoxication thereof. There can be something intoxicating about wealth. There can be something intoxicating about wine. It can feel fun for a little while, can't it? But in the morning, the hangover comes. You know, the, the, the beer in the morning or the wine in the morning to get over the hangover starts the intoxication again, and the cycle never ends. And pretty soon, carnage has come, and the family's fallen apart because there's not true satisfaction. Wealth, it doesn't do it. You know, I work at a car dealership. I see, do you know that a half-ton pickup can be over $80,000 these days? I see people buying a half-ton pickup for $80,000, and they're so excited because it's shiny, and it feels nice, and has a 1,000 trinkets. It even vibrates the steering wheel when you're not staying in your lane. Like, 1,000 trinkets. But it doesn't take very long, and that $80,000 pickup has lost its shine. The intoxication of the new leather smell and the new interior smell and the smooth ride very quickly disappears when the $1,000 a month payment shows up. It even more disappears when they come back and see me because their phone won't connect and, and you know, it shifted weird and, 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 and. And now three years later, they trade in for $20,000 and give away 75%. The intoxication soon leaves. It becomes old very quickly. My home becomes old and the floors go like this. The intoxication, the, the, the enjoyment or the, the joy that stuff brings disappears really fast. The intoxication of conquest becomes irrelevant too. It's, it's said of Alexander the Great that when he conquered the last kingdom he could conquer, he wept because there was no, nothing else to conquer. The intoxication was done. There's no rest for the pursuit of, of temporal intoxication. It says, why does Sheol, he says. It's like death. Death comes to all, at least physically. He continues to speak, and he lays out five woes against Babylon. Starting in verse six, shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those who awake who will make, sorry, and those awake who will make you tremble. Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe number one, stolen, plunder, indebtedness, unjust debt. You know, chapter one, verse six, describe the, the Chaldeans as a bitter and hasty nation. They march the breath and they just take what's in the way. Those stolen goods of war therefore become pl plunder. There is a debt incurred, the blood that has been spilled to steal that stuff. It is, it's like it's crying out as a banknote that's gonna be taken back. And the Lord says here, someone else is gonna rise up and they're gonna take that plunder from you to cover that debt. The second woe in verse nine, woe to him who gets evil for his house to set his nest on high to be safe 
from the <clears throat> reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The second woe, you know, the evil gain can also be translated as covetousness, as some translations do. The idea of greed, an insatiable uh, desire to accumulate more. In fact, it talks about that desire here is used to build up one's, one's um, uh, um, estate. To be safe. Out of, the, out, out of harm's way. You know, for those of you guys who go in Israel, once again, you're going to see these tells. And uh, as I was th- thinking this, in my mind's eye, I had Megiddo in mind. And Megiddo is a, is a large tell. There used to be a city up there. And I have this, in my mind's eye, uh, someone accumulating through dishonest gain uh, the ability to build this fortress and overlook everyone around them, and have a safety zone. But God says here that even those stones, it's going to be clear that it's unjustly gained. The stones are going to be obvious, and it's going to scream that it's, that it's unjust gained. The woodwork's going to scream that it's unjust gained. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire. The nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who builds his kingdom through violence. Just think of it. Builds his fortress up on top of Megiddo. Conquers all the little towns around through violence now indebted because of the blood spilled. <laughs> Kingdom building, gathering captives like sand. And it, you know it's beautiful here because God also reminds us the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know we can only look out there this morning to get the understanding of the waters covering the sea. The whole earth will know the glory of our Lord. When Jesus returns and he steps down and he puts his foot on Mount Olives and it splits in two, the whole world will know the glory of our Lord. Scripture says every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. The next woe, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Verse 15, you pour out your wrath and shame and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come upon you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Some translations actually talk about as pressing your bottle onto your neighbor's mouth. You know, Scripture doesn't explicitly condemn alcohol, but it certainly explicitly condemns drunkenness very, very loudly. And here it does hugely. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink, who forces it upon him. In fact, there's something deeper than just the drink here. There is a sensuality, a lewdness that is described here. It's talking about Babylon wanting to humiliate and take advantage of, probably in a physical and sexual nature as well. They want to look upon the nakedness of their captors. They want to humiliate. They want to control by shame. 
Strip away one's dignity. Reminds me of what's happened in the slave trade over the years, right? They, they, would, they would put the slaves on display and strip away their dignity. But the Lord says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The, the Babylonians, they had glorified themselves, right? They thought of themselves as gods. And the Lord says, that glory is gonna go and you will be shamed. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. And the, cups of the, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come upon you. God's wrath's coming upon Babylon. And history tells us that it has. It even talks in verse 19, this is interesting, or 17 rather. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence of the earth, the cities and all who dwell them. As I was reading this week and studying, uh, apparently uh, Nebuchadnezzar to build the town or city of Babylon, he w- needed so much cedar that they pillaged the forests in Lebanon. They actually built a direct road between Babylon and, Neb- and Lebanon, the forests of Lebanon, to transport the wood so they could build their vast city. They even, sh- in a way, shamed the nation, the resources of the nation. But all that to say, those four woes, all those things that Babylon has done, all these things that we can see in our, in our culture, maybe that we can see in our own lives, they all come down to what the next woe is. Starting in verse 18. Excuse me. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when, it, when he makes a speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You know, sometimes I find the Lord uses a little bit of sarcasm and it's kind of good. You know, if you were to flip to Isaiah uh, chapter 44, it describes uh, a woodcutter. And he went out and he put some, he planted a, a, a start of a cedar tree in the ground and it rained. The Lord gave the increase, the tree grew. Then what does he do? He goes and he chops it down, takes it home. Well, let's cut this sucker up. We're going to make some furniture for it. Let's make a table. And, oh, it's cold in here. We're going to make a fire. Oh, we need to cook our meat. We're going to cook in the stove with the wood. Oh, we have this much left. Let's carve an idol. And then we're going to go bring it over to the goldsmith. He's going to put some gold on it. And now we're going to come home and we're going to worship and say, oh, idol, teach me and save me. The futility. You know, we tend not to have our little manful idols in our homes, do we? But I have to ask myself, what have I put before God in my life? What is an idol? Something that we worship other than God. Is it my house? Is it my bank account? Believe me, that disappears quick. Is it that $80,000 truck that's really just nuts and bolts? Is it our spouse? Is it our relationships? 
I don't know, I, had, I don't know what it is for you, but I had to think about this a little bit and meditate on this. Lord, what, what, if I, what am I serving before you? What am I serving other than you? What's an idol in my life? What have I made, so to speak, with my hands and now I'm worshiping? Idolatry throughout the whole Bible is, is described as whoredom, the idea of, of cheating, adultery. But the Lord has laid out a scathing indictment against the nation of Babylon here, has he not? You know what's really interesting? Habakkuk asked questions, right? He said, why, 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 Lord? Why are our people so, so evil? How come the right, they're unrighteous? And how come right's wrong and wrong's right? All this stuff. And the Lord answered him. He didn't like the answer. And they said, why Babylon? Did the Lord tell him why? The Lord never told him why. But the Lord gave him revelation. When we go to God's word and we go intently, we go to the place of waiting, when we take our worries and our whys to the Lord and we wait on the Lord, he brings revelation of his goodness. He brings revelation that he has a plan that all things are gonna work out. He's in control. He's got, in this, this circumstance, he's got a solution for the unjust leaders in Judah. It's Babylon. He has a solution for Babylon. But he never, ever had to tell Habakkuk the why. Because God's ways are not our ways. He's above us. He's waited on the Lord. He's listened to the Lord. He's meditated on the Lord. And now he responds as a man with a changed heart. Look how differently he responds compared to his first question. Starting in chapter three, the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. I have no idea what Shiganoth means. Apparently it's only used one other time in a singular sense and this is the plural sense. They think it might be a musical term. Anyhow, the prayer. O Lord, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He says, Lord, revive your work. That should be our cries of our hearts. Lord, will you revive your work in our town, in our nation? And will you revive your work in me? And he follows it up and says, Lord, in your wrath, as you work out your plan, please show mercy. And then he goes into this beautiful song. God came from Taman, which kind of means the south, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, the wilderness desert area that Israel came through. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hand, a symbol of power. There, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Sound like Egypt? He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. 
the enemies of Israel, Cushan and Midian. You know, I, I was reading my quiet times this week, and uh, I'm reading through in Joshua and a couple other places. But in Joshua, you know when the, the spies, they went into Jericho, and um, they report that the people in Jericho trembled in fear that Israel was there. They knew of the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of the Egyptian armies. They knew of God's provision for this wandering group of people. They knew of the conquering uh, uh, war battles that they had in the wilderness. They heard about how as the priest's feet stepped into the water of the Jordan that the overflowing river opened up and the waters heaped up and they crossed in dry ground. They knew that and they trembled and they feared. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? Maybe those rivers in the Red Sea. When you rode your horses and your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from the bow, calling for more arrows. Selah. Stop and think about it. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging river swept on. The deep, voice gave, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. They marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind and scattered me. Man, that reminds me of that battle. I don't even know where it is. I should have looked it up. But the battle, you know, when they, they only had a few and they came and they surrounded the enemy's camps and they held their torches inside the clay jars. And when they smashed the clay jars and they sounded the trumpets, all the people in the, the army in the camp, they looked around and said, we're surrounded. And they went into panic. And what did they do? They killed each other because they didn't know who the enemy was. And the Lord had a great victory. And Israel didn't raise a, a finger except for breaking some jars and making some noise. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me. You rejoiced as if to devour the, to the poor in secret. You trampled the seas with your horses, the surging of mighty rivers. I hear and my bones trembles and my voice quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and legs, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You know, you can go through that, that, that prayer, that song, and you can see how the... He recounts God's faithfulness to his nation. Some people will say that it's also about events to come, and I think it can be both. But he's speaking of the goodness of God and the work that God has done in the history of his people and his nation. And you know what? It actually makes him tremble as he looks at what God's done, the glory of God, his greatness, his strength. It trembles. His knees are knocking a little bit. Yet I will quietly wait, he says, for the day of trouble to come, up, come upon the people who invade us. He recognizes that God's got a plan. It's going to be taken care of. He's going to quietly wait, and he's going to recount God's goodness. You know, Matt spoke last week about thankfulness, about being thankful. In a way, this is a beautiful summation of thankfulness and declaration of what God has done. 
You know, as we speak out our thankfulness, it does something to, to your heart. I don't know about you guys, but for me, if I speak out thankfulness, it helps me in my heart and changes my perspective. It, it, it helps draw me out of a place of complacency. When I declare his works, past, present, and future, it helps me to keep my eyes focused on him. It builds my confidence in my God and brings me back into proper perspective that God is God and I am merely man. Remember, the same God who ordained the end has ordained the means. God's got it under control. The end of chapter three, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers and makes me to tread on high places. I was driving home yesterday and a little herd of deer bounded across the road in front of me. Have you ever watched those guys bound? Like it's, like it's I don't know. It's, it's incredible. It's light-footed. It's like joyful. You know, on Wednesday night prayer, uh, I don't think Julie's here this morning. Julie didn't know I was going to be teaching Habakkuk, and uh, in our prayer time, she read these verses that I just read. And then she paraphrased them. I don't know the words that she used exactly, but she essentially paraphrased it this way. Though my health may fail, though my finances may fail, though my relationships may fail me, though my government may fail me, Though my friends and family disappoint, though I don't understand, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is my strength and he gives me feet of the deer, feet that may bound. Should that not be the prayer of our hearts? The last little line of the book is to the choir with the stringed instrument. Some translate it as my stringed instrument. I can just imagine, you know, Habakkuk uh, going back to the temple. Hey guys, picking up his guitarish thing. Here's a song I wrote. Though the tree may not blossom, declare the praises of God. So all that to say, this little book, these three little chapters, the most important thing with these three little chapters is, verse two, verse, is chapter two, verse four. The just will live by faith. For those of us who know Jesus Christ this morning, it's great hope, it's great assurance that our works and our stuff is not what saves us, is not what gives us salvation. But it's also great hope if you don't know Jesus Christ here this morning. You know, Babylon, they had a king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he, in his mind, thought that he was God. He was walking on the roof of his palace and says, oh, mighty Babylon, that I have built with my own hands. And fulfillment of prophecy, he lost his mind. And he went and became like a cow for seven years. He crawled on his hands and knees and ate grass. And his nails became like the claws of birds, it says. Brutal. But after seven years, he lifted his eyes and he, he declared who God was. 
I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. He was reinstated to his throne on earth. He put his faith in God. He put his trust in God. doesn't matter what you've been through in life, where you've, what you've done. We are just, we are made right before God when we put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Washed white as snow by that blood on the cross. The Bible uses a word called propitiation. It's like a transaction. It's done. We can go from seeking intoxication to intoxication that doesn't fulfill to abundant life. That can't be removed. For those of us that know Jesus, there's assurance in 2 verse 4 that we don't have to be do, 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 do. We're to trust, 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 trust. Yeah, we have some responsibility to live godly lives, but we're saved by our faith. But the other thing is, is I look overall and I see this guy who is a worrier and a wire. Some of us are wires. Maybe it's not always bad to be why, but the question is, what do we do with our whys? We can be like Jonah, right? You guys all remember what Jonah did. Something, he didn't make sense to him. And rather than going as Habakkuk did to the tower to his place to seek the Lord, he went down to Joppa. He ran. And he went down to the hold of the ship. And the storm came and they tossed him overboard and he sunk down till the Bible describes him as near death. And the Lord ordained a mighty fish to come and swallow him up and it says it took three days before his prayer came before the Lord. Three days. I don't know about you guys but I want to be like Habakkuk when I go through stuff I can't figure out, I can't understand. I want to follow this example and intently come before my God and ask him to help me. And he moves to worshiper. The circumstances have not changed. He still doesn't get it. But he is reminded who God is and that God is big. And there's people in this room and there's all of us. We've got stuff going on. There's big stuff going on in our lives. The challenge, I think, for you and I is that we wait on the Lord earnestly and move from why to worshiper. Paul and Silas were locked up in a prison and they brought their praises before the Lord and the Lord moved mightily. So for me, that's what Habakkuk says to me. Go to the tower Seek the Lord. Go to the place of worship. This morning, worship team, you guys come on up. We're going to be taking part in communion. Matt's going to lead us in a minute. Um, so let's reflect on the goodness of what God has done for us. That he is from everlasting. And he's got it all under control. We need not fear. Amen?